Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hey everyone, I'm here before the episode starts to bring you learning moments with Amy. Now that I've been podcasting and advocating for a few years, my understanding of endometriosis, as well as the issues that our community faces, well, they've really evolved and progressed over the years. So I've been going through our earliest episodes because I want to make sure that these earliest published episodes have accurate information in them. For this episode, I'd like to comment that when we recorded this episode, I had just started learning about hormone replacement therapy. So there's a lot that we left out of this episode that I now know is really important to mention. So I wanted to say that I wrote up a pretty long description on my webpage of hormone replacement therapy, and I linked that in the show notes today. And very excitedly, I'm also going to interview a menopause expert, so stay tuned for that. In this episode, I mentioned how I went to a functional medicine doctor and then a naturopath who both gave me different hormonal advice. Now, if I had known then what I know today, I would not have gone to either of those doctors for my hormones. I would have gone straight to a menopause expert, which here in the United States you can find on the NAMS website, which is the North American Menopause Society website under their Find a Practitioner tab. But when I started my hormone journey with those two doctors, it was because no one had figured out that my weird symptoms that were all over my body, from racing heart to dry mouth to insomnia, were partially because of perimenopause. And so I ended up on this wild goose chase to figure out what was going on, desperately landing in the hands of a functional medicine doctor. And he had so many red flags that I was not aware of, from using the Dutch test to test my hormones, to selling unregulated hormones in his online shop, and to selling me all kinds of supplements to supposedly balance my hormones. Now, I want to say it is true that he did help me with some of my issues, uh, because I had a lot going on that time with histamine and SIBO and mast cell and other things. But there was so much wasted time and wasted money too. And eventually, recently, I did make my way to a NAM certified practitioner, but that took time. And I finally got on oral micronized progesterone and testosterone gel. And that has made a world of difference to my symptoms to get on the hormones that I need in the doses that I need. I'm angry. You know, I'm angry that sexism and ageism come together to result in us not being taught body literacy and my doctors not being taught to recognize menopausal symptoms 
So no one could recognize that my insomnia and racing heart and rosacea and other things were due to my hormones. And I'm angry too that the surgeon who removed my ovary didn't tell me that the loss of an ovary could affect my hormone output. Instead, he just told me that I would be fine. And I believed that. And I was so emotionally unprepared for what laid ahead of me for the next couple of years until I could finally find an actual menopause specialist. So I really just want to make it clear in this introduction that if you've had one or both of your ovaries removed, or if you've had a hysterectomy, and some months later you're having weird symptoms, it could be that you need hormone replacement therapy. And even if you didn't have any surgeries, if you're in your mid-30s or older, and sometimes younger for people, and you have this weird onset of symptoms, it could be perimenopause. Hormone symptoms are not just hot flashes, and I wish that I had known that. Most doctors are not menopause specialists and don't know a lot about hormone replacement therapy. So if you need hormone replacement therapy, definitely educate yourself so that you can advocate for yourself. So you can go into hormone replacement therapy right away with true experts and not waste time like I did bouncing around from doctors who just did not know best practices. And the last thing I want to say is that the current North American Menopause Society guidelines only recommend testosterone for low libido. And because of this, many providers, even NAMS, so North American Menopause Society, certified providers, often ignore the important role that testosterone plays in people assigned female at birth, or they even demonize it. And this lack of understanding of the role that testosterone plays in us is a massive disservice to us. Did you know that our ovaries produce three times more testosterone than estrogen prior to menopause? So for many people of low levels of testosterone, then they start taking it, it can be a lifesaver and it can help them to feel like themselves again. And I'm on testosterone gel now, and I think this is a really important message to talk about the role of testosterone in hormone replacement therapy. We do not talk about this in this episode today, but I am going to have an episode coming up on it soon. All right. Thanks for joining Learning Moments with Amy, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're back to continue our hormone discussion. In the previous episodes in this series, we've spoken about overall hormones, as well as perimenopause and menopause. Yay! Today, we're going to talk about hormone replacement therapy, testing for your hormones, and safety of hormone replacement therapy. And this will be for the hormones of people assigned female at birth. Don't forget that all the resources that we use to make this episode are in the resources section of our website in 16years.com. And we've listed some really great resources for this episode, so definitely check them out if the topic of hormones is of interest to you. Okay, let's jump in. To start, let's say that you're either in perimenopause, like I am, or menopause, like I'm gonna be. And we explained those life stages in depth in the previous episode. So Brittany, why don't you lead this discussion since you aren't in perimenopause or menopause? Hey, we all have our things, okay? <laughs> You're not in mental anguish, okay? <laughs> How do you know? How do you, you tell me know? everything? That's true. <laughs> well, now that you've given me such a warm welcome, <laughs> I guess we'll take it away. 
Okay, so let's say that you're having symptoms or... Oh, wait a minute. Okay, who here is not having hormone <laughs> symptoms? Like, if you don't raise your okay. hand, blessed. You are blessed. <laughs> All right, raise your hand if your hormones are working. Great. Crickets, as I expected, yes. Anyone. <laughs> no one? Anyone. Okay. Not surprised. So if you are having symptoms or you've had an ovary removed, both ovaries removed, or you're just plain curious and you want to get your hormones tested, we're going to talk about what tests we should do and who should do them. And Amy's going to inform us because she's done it. <laughs> I'm next, but she went first. <laughs> Yay. Brittany always copies me. Brittany's like, I'll just wait till Amy figures all of it out. And then I'm like, Amy, how'd you do this? Okay, thanks. I'll do it now. Like, it's a great friendship. It took me hours to learn all of this. And Brittany's like, yeah, and I, I benefited. Yeah, we do it in other ways. She benefits off of me for something. (laughs) (laughs) Self-confidence. Compassion. Compassion. Empathy. Empathy. See, I'm copying you again. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is a mutual beneficial friendship, okay? I'm not a leech. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Or is she? So there are different types of doctors who could be qualified to work with you and your hormone troubles or your hormone cocoon blossoming, (laughs) cocoon making, blossoming to spring. You make it sound way more beautiful than it is. The new spring. (laughs) Our spring reoccurrence. In Japan, they call menopause the second spring. That's so lovely. I know. A re-spring of spring. So there are different kind of doctors who could potentially work with you. You could have your MD or your DO. So that's your, you know, doctor of medicine is the MD. Then the DO is the doctor of osteopathic medicine. So those are just like kind of like your traditional doctors. This could maybe be your primary care doctor. It could be your gynecologist, an endocrinologist. It could even be a nurse practitioner. And then we also have naturopaths or functional medicine doctors. So, first of all, if we all you know, want to work on our hormones, we could all be seeing a different type of doctor and that could be okay. But it's good to keep in mind that just because a doctor is a naturopathic doctor or a gynecologist, it doesn't mean that they know how to work with hormones. It's kind of the same thing with endo, right? Just because you're a gynecologist or a doctor doesn't mean you know anything about endometriosis. Exactly. So with Anything that you want to work on with your body, you have to remember that the doctor that you work with needs to have experience in working, in this case, with hormones. And so how do you know if they have experience? You talk to them. You ask them questions. You know, you ask them what they would do. See how knowledgeable they are about hormones. Ask them how they would test your hormones. Ask them what kind of treatment they would use if you're having hormone problems. One place you can start, at least here in the United States, is you can look online at the North American Menopause Society's website. So there they have a find a provider section, and you can actually search by zip code, and it lists doctors that have passed a competency examination that that was developed by the North American Menopause Society. So these doctors have been awarded the credential of certified menopause practitioner. Ooh, fancy. So it lists gynecologists, endocrinologists, physician assistants, naturopaths, and other types of healthcare professionals. And of course, just like with any list of doctors, 
This does not mean that those doctors in that database can treat you specifically for your specific case. So you're still going to need to look into the doctors and ask them questions as you would for any doctor that's going to treat you, but that can be a good place to start. Just a word of caution, be careful with the private hormone clinics because some of them use unregulated hormones. And also in this episode, I'm going to talk about my own experience with hormone replacement therapy and how I went through a functional medicine doctor and a naturopath. But since then, I've learned that there are major problems with both functional medicine and naturopathy. Unfortunately, there's a general lack of evidence-based medicine for both of those two practices. There is a reliance on unnecessary and even useless medical tests. There's use of unregulated supplements and hormones, etc. I wrote more about this on my website in depth, so I linked that in the show notes today. But if you're thinking about working with a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath, please check that out. I wish that I had had this information when I had gone into working with a naturopath. And I think a lot of people learn this information via hindsight after they've had poor experiences, but they don't know it going in. And, you know, in order to have informed consent, we need to have all the information. So as we just covered, a doctor... I'm sorry, as I just covered, but... As we just covered on our podcast... Fine. (laughs) A medical professional can have varying degrees of knowledge or experience or a certain way they may approach treating your hormonal issue. So I want to kind of understand if we were presented with a hormonal issue like... Amy's, for example, her progesterone and testosterone both tested low. So if I went to a functional medicine doctor. Well, is it you or is it Amy? Because Amy's the one who tested low. If anyone went to. Oh, okay. (laughs) We're just, this is a hypothetical person. I thought we were talking about me. Okay, we'll talk about you. I know it makes you feel good. Thank you. Amy tested. Say my name again. Low. Amy tested. Amy tested (laughs) low for Amy's progesterone and Amy's testosterone (laughs) tested low. (laughs) So Amy. If she went to a functional medicine doctor... Don't say she. Say Amy. If Amy went to a functional medicine doctor, Amy would likely be told that Amy needs to... God, I'm getting overwhelmed by all the Amy's. <laughs> you told me to do it. Well, when Amy was seeing a functional medicine doctor, Amy's functional medicine doctor wanted to treat Amy's low progesterone <laughs> and testosterone <laughs> by giving Amy precursors for those hormones. And so the functional medicine doctor said that he wanted to treat Amy with DHEA, which, as we said, was a precursor or a building block that converts to testosterone and estrogen in the body. He also wanted to treat Amy with pregnenolone, which, as we explained in a previous episode, is like the first building block that hormones are made from. And then he also wanted to give Amy oral progesterone. So he wanted to do, in a nutshell here, oral progesterone DHEA, and pregnenolone. Whew. And I'm curious as to if Amy were to see a natural path, what kind of treatment plan she might be given. So Amy did end up switching to a natural path because of several reasons. The functional medicine doctor really helped me with my gut and my histamine problems that I was having, but I just wasn't sold on his knowledge about hormones. So I am now seeing the naturopathic primary care physician, and she wants Amy to take progesterone for now because Amy's having a lot of symptoms that are coming from low progesterone. But this doctor only wants 
Amy. God, it's really hard to talk about myself in the third person. <laughs> I keep getting confused. Fine, we can drop the Amy talk. Oh, thank goodness. Because <laughs> I keep, I'm like, I can't talk about. Can't keep up. Yeah. It's okay. I, it's all the forgetfulness and the, the memory. It's all the brain lot. fog. Yeah, Mushu's around the corner. <laughs> it's really hard right now. <laughs> it's my low progesterone. and has me confused. Okay. So basically, the naturopath wanted me to go. And the, well, this is what I'm doing. She has me on progesterone right now because I'm having symptoms of low progesterone and to help with those symptoms and insomnia and to help me just get through my life of hell, my hell life, my hell cocoon of perimenopause. (laughs) But then I specifically asked her, would you put me on DHA or pregnenolone? She said, no, for now, I want to try to work on supplements and adaptogens like makaru and I want to work on your methylation for your estrogen detoxification. And so that's what we're doing right now is a lot of like supplements and herbs. And her goal is to have me on progesterone maybe for like a year and then to try to get me off of progesterone. Whether or not that will work, we don't know. We'll cross <laughs> that bridge when it comes to it. But that's, that's a part the, of treatment. <laughs> that's the plan for right now. Okay. And finally, but actually where you started was with a gynecologist. What treatment plan did the gynecologist give you? I think no one is going to be surprised here when I say that the gynecologist said the good old handy dandy, oh, well, you know, birth control is really good for that. Just suppress all the issues with birth control. (laughs) That'll just be fine forever. Oh, yikes. So what I find really fascinating is that for the same exact issue, low progesterone and testosterone, different medical professionals gave you completely different treatment plans. Oh, and that's why they always say, get a second opinion. <laughs> or a third or a fourth opinion. If you in don't like case. the first opinion <laughs> or you feel unsure of the first opinion. So I like what you said about not liking the opinion or wanting to get another opinion because I do think that there's something to be said for being an active player in our treatment plan. And if I feel uncomfortable with the treatment plan that I'm given because either I feel like I've done a lot of research and I don't know that that's the option I want to go or I'm just unsure of how this treatment plan is going to work for me, if I'm an active participant, an active player, then I can ask questions. I can decide that maybe the natural pathway sounds great for me, or maybe the endocrinologist path sounds great for me. So being an active player and knowing how to ask questions, knowing what kind of treatment you're looking to go for is really important in deciding which professional's advice to take. Same with our endometriosis. We need to know enough to know that the doctor knows. (laughs) And we need to know enough to know if what they're telling us is what we want to do with our bodies. So I want to go back to a second to the last treatment option, which was actually the first one you got, which was from the gynecologist about the birth control. Now, I think we all know from our endometriosis journeys that not every gynecologist knows about endometriosis. And the same goes here. Not every gynecologist knows enough or specializes in hormones. Even endometriosis specialists don't specialize in hormones. It's a specific thing that we have to look for and be intentional about, just like when we're treating for endo. I mean, they may specialize. Yeah, they may, but they don't usually. Mm -hmm. Like in my case, when I was talking to my endo specialist about my hormones, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I don't know a lot about hormones. I recommend you see an endocrinologist for this. And I was so impressed with him. And I was like, thank you so much. For not pretending that you knew. (laughs) I didn't like follow up. In my head, this is what I did in my head. On the outside, I was like, oh, okay, thanks for letting me know. But on the inside, I was like, thank you so much for just like not pretending or not, you know, being like, oh, well, 
oh, you're having hormone problems. Oh, just take birth control. Or mm, let me see what prescription I can write you. Like, if you don't have a specialty in that and you don't know, please, for, the, for goodness sake, just, yeah, say, I, I don't know. Or hormones aren't my specialty. Or I'm not normally treating people with hormones and I want to refer you to this other doctor. Or I recommend you go find a doctor who's just, I feel like so many doctors are not good at saying that they just, they don't know. And if they could just say, I don't know. I want to refer you, or I don't know. I think you should find XYZ specialist. It would save so many of us so much heartache and money and effort and frustration and trial and error. So I really, I respect my endo specialist for having the courage and the humility to outright say, I'm sorry, I don't specialize in hormones. You should see another doctor for that. Thank you. So thankful. I love him all. Thank you. I love him. Okay. So like I said, we want to talk a little bit about birth control for a moment. I do want to preface before we go into this that there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking birth control. I think there's some shame in general that's heaped upon people who choose to use hormonal birth control, but we want you to know that we are supportive of whatever choice you make for your body including hormonal birth control. But we did want to talk about what it can do for you and what it also doesn't do in this case. The most commonly prescribed hormonal birth control is the pill, and I think we've all heard of the birth control pill. And the birth control pill is designed to prevent our bodies from getting pregnant. When we're on the pill, the body doesn't generally ovulate and it doesn't generally have a period. Well, what do you mean, Brittany? Because if you're on the pill, then a lot of people do bleed in the fourth week of their cycle. <laughs> so why does that blood come out of my vagina? Huh? That's spraying, angry. That's spraying <laughs> all over my bathroom light switch. So when you bleed on hormonal birth control like the pill, it's actually a withdrawal bleed from your lack of hormones. Oh. So it's not abnormal in most wow. cases. It's just a withdrawal bleed. So it's not a period. Mm -mm, it is not. It's a withdrawal bleed. So the hormones in a birth control pill are synthetic, and they usually maintain the hormones at a steady level. Well, what's wrong with that? Who doesn't want steady hormones? <laughs> I want steady hormones. So here's the thing. If you've ever looked at a chart of your hormones online or just looked up the cycle of hormones in general, you'll see that there's an actual natural hormone rhythm that a cycling person has. That's true. I've seen it. And they look like the estrogen goes up and it peaks and it comes down and the progesterone goes up and it peaks and it comes down. They're like mountain climbing all the time. They're like, it's like <laughs> music, hormonal music. Yes. So in a person with a 28-day cycle, estrogen rises around day seven all the way up until ovulation. Ooh. He walks up the mountain. Yes. The hormonal climbs. musical mountain. <laughs> so after we ovulate, progesterone rises. Ooh. So progesterone's climbing the mountain now. She's all rugged in her mountain climbing gear going all the way up. With her strawberry sunglasses yes. on. Well, she crushed those, remember. So no. she has her heart ones now. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so estrogen does start rising again around day 17. Now they're climbing the mountain together, and they both peak around day 21. Oh, and they're like, oh, what beautiful. We're on the top, and all oh, the sunset. It's beautiful. Wow. Sun rising above the clouds. It's cold up here. 
Well, the air is so thin. Luckily, Where's my oxygen mask? Yeah, luckily and unluckily, they start to descend from the mountain. They've had their time at the peak. And Pushing starting each other. their descent. They're squabbling now. Yeah, they're like, fighting a little bit. It's a little dangerous now. <laughs> like there's, siblings. There's a crevasse over there. There's a ravine. <laughs> they're like, like I'm going to go are... down first. They're like, yeah, yes, you're going to go down last. <laughs> they're going <laughs> down together. Can't you just go down together in harmony and peace? <laughs> well, by the time the blood comes, they are descending the mountain they're in the bottom and they're at the bottom they're they're with me in the mud pit at the bottom of the mountain now with the blood that's coming behind them like an avalanche (laughs) oh it's what a visual it's bloody mud it's (laughs) mud blood yes it's great Hmm. okay so i see what you mean so basically you just kind of described so eloquently the graph that one could just pause and go on google and look for a hormone graph right now and really see how the hormones go up and down during the cycle. And that's just like the natural rhythms of the body. With birth control, these peaks and valleys don't happen. Right. So with hormonal birth control, it basically shuts off our ovulation and therefore our estrogen and our progesterone. And it replaces our hormones with synthetic drugs that don't have the same benefits in our body as our natural hormones. Hormonal birth control is exactly that. It's for preventing pregnancy, but it's not hormone replacement therapy. Even though some, or many, (laughs) uninformed doctors will prescribe a person birth control in order to balance their hormones, it does not do that. It doesn't balance hormones. But birth control is really helpful for so many of us in this community, and outside of it. It helps many people, first of all, not get pregnant if they don't want to be pregnant. It also helps many people manage their symptoms of painful periods or heavy periods and other problems that are related to our periods and cycles. Oh, thank you, birth control, for giving us this option to help manage some of our really relentless, painful, (laughs) excruciating, agonizing, annoying, frustrating, irritating, (laughs) painful, 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 painful symptoms. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you, birth control, for helping us get through that. Not me, because birth control has never... Never agreed with you. <laughs> yeah, birth control has always made me... I tried a lot of birth control when I was a teen to help with my endometriosis symptoms, but hormones have always made me feel so sick. And unfortunately, it was not something my body could tolerate. And similarly for me, synthetic birth control hormones have always made my mental health really strained. Oh, yeah. So they can affect us all in very different ways, but they are a really wonderful tool for a lot of people, and we're so lucky to have that option. So that's what birth control can do for us, but what we really want to focus on is what birth control doesn't do. You're so negative, Brittany. (laughs) This is negative because... You're always like, I want to focus on the negative. (laughs) No, listen, listen. This isn't negative. This is informative. Isn't Brittany a pessimist? (laughs) My God. I'm a realist, okay? (laughs) Well, it's important to know what birth control cannot do because when we're looking for a treatment option for hormonal issues like hormone replacement therapy, knowing that birth control doesn't actually operate as hormone replacement therapy is important to know. So if you're looking for hormone replacement therapy and the doctor you are with suggests that you take birth control for hormone replacement therapy, it's a really great way to have an indication that they likely aren't as well-versed in hormones as other doctors and maybe they're not equipped to help you in the best way. 
And as we just discussed a couple minutes ago, it's really frustrating when a doctor isn't able to refer you when they don't know best. And I think a lot of doctors feel like they have to be the resource of all knowledge for their patients. And I think that's a big burden they put on themselves. But it's just not true. A doctor can't know everything. (laughs) It's not possible for a doctor to specialize in everything. I think a little healthy skepticism is good, knowing what kind of questions to ask when you hear something like taking birth control when you need hormone replacement therapy. It's just a good way to equip yourself with a tool to know if you're getting the treatment that is going to work best for you. Having said all that, birth control might be the right option for you, especially if you're looking for ways to prevent pregnancy or for another reason. But you might have all low hormones, not being looking to prevent pregnancy, and looking instead to do hormone replacement therapy like Amy was. In that case, birth control may not be the best option for you because it's not hormone replacement therapy. So I think, you know, knowledge is power. I think a lot of times the doctors do say like, oh, birth control, it's safe or it has no side effects. And that is not true. There can be side effects. And I think oftentimes we're not given complete information from our doctors to make an informed consent. And as Brittany said here, like, there is no shame for using birth control. I really wish I could have used it when I was younger, when I was in college, when I was really struggling with a lot of endometriosis and pain. And I hadn't found the dietary and lifestyle changes yet that had helped me through the years get through that. It was just it was really hard not having that tool. And I know that tool is so helpful to so many people in this community. And that is so wonderful that we have this option. But like anything that we put in our bodies, it's really good to have the whole picture and the whole understanding. Continuing on the topic of the doctor's knowledge, in the last episode, we talked about all the wonderful ways that progesterone can help us in perimenopause. Hold on, I just want to go, ah, (laughs) progesterone. And Ah. Amy will continue to do that until she leaves this earth. So (laughs) you just get used to it. Strap in. She's going to do that forever. So the progesterone, talking about progesterone can help us during perimenopause is if our symptoms are caused by our progesterone declining. But the unfortunate reality is that many doctors are not aware of the benefits of taking progesterone by itself during Ah, perimenopause. That's sad. Yes, it is. Under current guidelines, progesterone is only officially recognized for balancing out estrogen when you take estrogen for hormone replacement therapy and have a uterus. Hold on. I roll. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Under the current guidelines, catch up guidelines to uh, how... We know they're always decades uh, behind. Great progesterone is. If you take estrogen and don't have a uterus, some doctors won't even prescribe you progesterone, even though it does have many positive benefits for our bodies. Actually, I saw this in action with my own doctor. When I was working with the functional medicine doctor, he wanted me to go on progesterone. And he actually sold oral progesterone that his company made because they made like a bunch of their own products. And so I bought it from him directly. And I'm just going to interrupt myself for a minute to say that this was a huge, huge red flag from him that I was not aware of at the time that, you know, him selling his own supplement line, including expensive, but most importantly, unregulated hormones is a huge red flag. And then I learned, which I don't know why I didn't think of this in the first place, but hindsight, oh well, 
I learned that I could probably get progesterone as a prescription from my gynecologist or from my primary care physician and that my insurance would cover it and that it would be way cheaper than what I was buying at the time directly from the functional medicine doctor. And I was kicking myself because I'm so frugal and I <laughs> like love to save money and not overspend what I don't have to. And I was like, why didn't I know about the oral progesterone prescription from my doctor? And I was really upset, but it is okay. I learned now a year too late, but that's okay. So I had an appointment with my PCP, with my primary care physician. And I explained that I was already taking progesterone, but I wanted to have my insurance covered instead. So I'd love if she would write me a prescription for progesterone. And okay, granted that she is a primary care physician and she's not a gynecologist, but she started asking me these questions like, okay, well, I don't understand why you're taking progesterone. Are you taking estrogen? Are you in menopause? And I said, no. I'm not on estrogen. I'm not in menopause. And then she was like, well, then I don't understand why you need progesterone if it's like for menopause (laughs) when you take estrogen. I was like, ah, must, must refrain from, (sighs) I need my progesterone, lady. Don't get in my way. (laughs) I will get my prescription for the insurance. I will become like this without the progesterone, okay? (laughs) With or without you. So actually, I'd already prepared a little speech about how I was in perimenopause and how progesterone is shown to decline during perimenopause. And that research has shown that it can help people with hot flashes and insomnia. And I have hot flashes and insomnia, and I've already been taking progesterone, and that it's been helping me, and that I could pass her the research if she wanted to look at it. I'd be happy to email it to her. And I must say, I was really convincing. And also very stern. I was like, oh, I need my progesterone. This isn't a discussion. You just have to write it, okay? (laughs) Please write it for me. Start crying, please. I'm only talking so that you can learn something, but you're going to write it for me. (laughs) No, but I do think going to the doctor with confidence and knowledge, and in this case, I said, I'm so happy to pass you the research. There is research on it, and I can send you that research if that's what you need in order to prescribe me that. I completely understand that you don't want to prescribe me something that You know, if you've never seen it work in this capacity, I understand that you'd be hesitant to prescribe it for me, but I do need it. It is helping me now. You know, I really need this prescription to get my sleep and to just honestly continue like having a better quality of life during perimenopause. And she was like, okay, yes, I will write you the prescription. I was like, thank you so much. No, I was really calm. She's a very good listener. We are appreciative. I really (laughs) like her. And I was like, oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And then she was like, okay, I'll write you a progestin. And I was like, no, 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 no. no. Slaps head. Two steps forward, one step back. I slap hand to forehead like, no. No, I didn't do that. I was like, no, I just want to be clear. It's progesterone. And luckily, I already looked up the name of the generic with my insurance. I was like, this is the name and the dosage I need. (laughs) I mean, aren't the commercials always saying here in the United States, ask your doctor, are you having pesky XYZ symptoms? Ask your doctor. Well, I'm asking my doctor. Okay, <laughs> I'm a commercial. Doing told me to what do. they told me to do. Okay, the pharma company. Where's my kickback from Big Pharma for asking for it? <laughs> Come on, I want my pay. Yeah, it is important to point out that doctors may confuse progestin and progesterone, but progesterone is not progestin. No, no, no. Progestin is a synthetic hormone, but progesterone is the natural hormone that our bodies already make. May not be making enough of, but they make it. <laughs> Legend says that our bodies made progesterone. Once upon a time, years <laughs> a and years long ago. time ago, when there was no cell phones or air travel. 
When we're all hunter gatherers, <laughs> our ancestors made progesterone on their own in their bodies. <laughs> progestins could potentially have more side effects when compared to progesterone, and progestins don't have the same benefits that progesterone does in the body. Progesterone only has one name, progesterone, and usually it's called oral micronized progesterone when you get a prescription. Your doctor probably knows progesterone as oral micronized progesterone and not as bioidentical progesterone. So a little tidbit you might want to bring with you in your back pocket. Yeah, like I said, I actually flat out told my doctor that the brand name is Permetrium here in the U.S. But then I said, okay, but please give me the generic because the generic is like 10 times cheaper. (laughs) So if your doctor prescribes you, quote unquote, progesterone, and the names are these really sciencey sounding things like Levonorgestrel, which is the progestin that's in the Mirena IUD or the Schuyler IUD, or if the name is something like Jospinernin, I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly, but you can see how complicated these names get, or something else like that, then it's not progesterone. The name of progesterone is progesterone, and that's it. And there's no sciencey sounding name because it's not synthetic, it's bioidentical. And it's typically a cream or an oral capsule. And even though I love my progesterone because it's helped me with my sleep, my histamine intolerance, my irregular cycles, my hormonal anxiety, this is not to say that everyone loves progesterone. Some people find it negatively affects their mood or other side effects. So, of course, like all things, the hormone replacement therapy that we do is going to be individualized. So now we know about some of the various doctors that Amy saw. We're going to talk about Amy again. So now that you found those doctors, what were some of the tests that you did and who recommended what test? First, I just want to point out that I didn't have all those doctors at the same time. I had each of those doctors at a different time. So typically you would work with one doctor who would give you a protocol based on your symptoms You wouldn't typically work with multiple doctors at once. I actually started with my gynecologist, and then I ran, like I ran screaming away from him, and he was like, oh my God, birth control is really helpful to regulate hormones. And I was like, "Uh uh uh-huh, yeah, leaving you, thanks. And then I saw the functional medicine doctor because I was actually trying to treat mast cell activation syndrome at that time. And as part of his protocol, he looked at my hormones. After a few months, I switched from him to a natural path because I just really kind of didn't like the personality of the functional medicine doctor. And the natural path was way cheaper in price than the functional medicine doctor. And the natural path was more experienced in hormones. And although the protocols of the functional medicine doctor were helping me, I also just felt like he had red flags that I couldn't put my finger on at the time because I didn't know what I was looking for. Really, I just felt like something was off with him and off with his practice. But like I said earlier, now I have a lot more clarity and background information in general on functional medicine and naturopathy as well. And I talk about these issues and the lack of evidence-based medicine on my website, which I linked in the show notes today. To talk about tests. There are different types of hormone testing. The most common and reliable are blood tests, which are often covered by insurance. And to read a quote from the NAMS, so the North American Menopause Society, 
From their position statement, they say, quote, Salivary and urine hormone testing to determine dosing are unreliable and not recommended. End quote. And then to quote from the NAMS Mennonite on bioidentical hormone therapy, they say, quote, It's not necessary to check blood, urine, or saliva hormone levels to find the right hormone replacement therapy dose. During reproductive life, estrogen levels vary throughout the menstrual cycle and during each day. So there's no perfect hormone level for any person. End quote. So usually hormone replacement therapies are based on your symptoms. Treatment is prescribed to improve perimenopause or menopausal symptoms, not to aim for some certain level on blood tests. However, some doctors may do an initial blood test to see your levels. And if after a few months on hormone replacement therapy, it doesn't seem like you're responding to it, they might check your levels again to make sure that you're absorbing the hormones that you're taking and to see if you need to change the dose. Having said that, many doctors prescribe your hormone replacement therapy solely based on your symptoms, and they won't do any blood tests at all. Now, I want to bring up the Dutch test here because it's gained popularity among naturopaths and functional medicine, and it's something that you could come across the way that I did. So not only is the Dutch test not covered by most insurance and can cost $400 or more, depending on the practitioner. But the criticisms of the Dutch test are that it's unnecessary and that the info is clinically meaningless for guiding hormone replacement therapy. Much of the same info can be gathered from blood tests for a fraction of the price. And as I just mentioned, most hormone replacement therapy is prescribed based on your symptoms, not on your hormone levels. Additionally, as I just read, the NAMS position statement says that urine hormone testing to determine dosing is unreliable and not recommended, and the Dutch is a urine hormone test. I did not know any of this, so unfortunately, I paid all that money for a test that I did not even need, which was beyond infuriating to find out later. So if you're working with a doctor that wants you to get a Dutch test, And if you're thinking about it, definitely read unbiased reviews on it before dropping a ton of money on it. And don't be afraid to ask your doctor to explore using the blood testing options if testing is necessary. And if they can't or they won't use blood testing options, that could be an indication to you that they're not fit to treat your hormones or that you may need to work with a different doctor for hormone replacement therapy. So, Brittany, do doctors generally just look at a person's estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, or are there more things that they're looking at? Well, some do. Some only look at the estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, but more comprehensive testing could include things like thyroid hormones, fasting insulin, glucose. Oh, Mm -hmm. I know why, because we (laughs) talked about how insulin and glucose can affect the hormones. Exactly. Mm. Okay. They could also test things like cortisol and DHEA or vitamin D, which is actually a steroid hormone, <gasps> not a vitamin. Really? I know, right? Why don't they call it hormone D? It's rude. Misnomer. So basically all of this is to say that the more comprehensive, the better. The more of this related testing that we have done, the better of a picture we can get about our overall health relating to our hormones and really what's going on rather than just specifically with three of our hormones. 
What Bernie is saying is the more information we have, the more we know how defective our body is and the more we know all the problems and no, challenges. The and more we know how to, to fix climb. it. No, 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 no. The, the more, more sad faces we can put on our budget sheets. We're like, okay, no. now I'm bud- here I'm budgeting for the magnesium. You accused me of always here being negative. Here I'm budgeting negative. for the hormones. Here I'm budgeting for the testing. Here I'm budgeting for the doctor's bills. Oh, and here I realize I need a whole new job that pays me five times what I make now. <laughs> no, I'm being the optimist this time and saying the more we know, the easier it is for us and our doctors to fully address our hormonal imbalance rather than to just address one aspect of it. So the more comprehensive, the more likely we are to have a better outcome in our treatment. Well, and the other thing is none of these hormones are working by themselves. It is such an interconnected... spaghetti in there. Yeah, it's such an... Well, I was going to go with a spider web, but spaghetti (laughs) is second rate. They're all swirled together and... Yeah, they're all, they're all affecting it. each other. So, you know, having something off here can affect something else. And so it's really nice to get that comprehensive overview. And many of these tests, at least here in the United States, can oftentimes be covered by insurance. All right. We are at the point in the episode. Whew, where? <laughs> we have given a lot of information, I feel like. But all this information is so important. And now we're working with our doctor. We have seen that some of our hormones are low, and we, with our doctor, have made the decision that we want to start on hormone replacement therapy. Woohoo! And so now you're wondering about whether or not to take bioidentical hormones or synthetic hormones. I'm just wondering about what a bioidentical hormone is versus a synthetic hormone and which one's better and which one's safer. So I think, first of all, to answer that question in a long-winded Amy. Typical Amy way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a lot of fear in both patients and providers around hormone replacement therapy. And much of this is due to a study done in 2002, which was by the Women's Health Initiative. So I think it's good to go all the way back to the 1960s to start this epic saga about hormones. Now, when hormone replacement therapy came out way back when, more than 60 years ago, there was an idea in the culture at the time of prolonging youth and femininity. <laughs> First of all, word femininity is really weird. Femininity. Like, it might pronounce it's a fun it, word. Femininity. <laughs> yeah, it's a tongue twister word. <laughs> femininity. Femininity. <laughs> and why do we say femininity? Because that's not us projecting our ideas. That was like actual ideas of the time. So wait, you're going to love this. There was a best-selling book. When you say love this, you mean hate this, right? (laughs) Yeah, like, let's make fun of this. There was a best-selling book, and it was called Feminine Forever. Oh, I already hate it. Yeah, ouch. I love the assumption that all people who identify as women want to be feminine, first of all. And second of all, that's all we're good for. (laughs) Ew. Forever, Brittany. Oh, gosh. And it was by Robert Wilson. Oh, okay. Now I see. A man wrote about why we need to be feminine forever. I see. Okay. Now it, now it makes sense. Yeah. Still now, not going to buy And it, remember 1960s. Very so different ideology. There was a very yes. different idea of women and culture at mm-hmm. that time. And so he thought that menopause was a, quote, Estrogen deficiency disease. Oh, there comes the word disease again. Okay. Yeah. So you were maybe you were diagnosed with this, you know, pesky menopause. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is pesky, but like (laughs) not a disease. Okay. And so he maintained that it should be treated 
with hormone estrogen replacement therapy. Instead of allowing your body to naturally do what it does, which is go into menopause, let's keep you young and beautiful forever with synthetic estrogen. (laughs) Smarty. (laughs) So hormone replacement therapy became very popular in the 1990s. And the first trials, yes, you heard me, the first trials after hormone replacement therapy had been in use for 30 years. The first trials came about in the late 1990s. And the results from the trial from the Women's Health Initiative were shown in 2002. And what they showed was that hormone replacement therapy had more risks than benefits. Oh, so what you're saying is that Mr. Robert Wilson was wrong. It's actually dangerous to be feminine forever (laughs) or whatever his idea of feminine was. Yikes, Robert. Yikes. Youthful and feminine. So they found that there was risks like it could increase conditions like breast cancer, heart disease, stroke, dementia. Yikes. (laughs) That's like really bad. Yeah, and so many people at that time stopped using hormone replacement therapy around the world, and they rightfully, because of those study results, became cautious and fearful about using it. So that was back then, back in the 2002s. That was almost 20 years ago. That's when I graduated from high school. (laughs) And that's also when I got my first endometriosis symptom. Oh, what a nice grad gift. Actually, it was in the middle of the year, so. (laughs) Okay, what a nice senior year gift then. (laughs) (laughs) But nowadays, so we want to say that the stance of many doctors and researchers on hormone replacement therapy has changed. And this is because new studies have been done and new analyses and new conclusions have been reached based on those studies. And so, Brittany and I, as always, we encourage you to go read up on this topic for yourself. We are going to give some information right now on it, and we're going to put the sources that we got it from in the fantastic resources page on our website so that you can go read and you can even look for further resources on your own to be able to make your decision for you personally. As we've said a lot of times, hormone treatment is super specialized and needs a lot of experience and knowledge. We have some, but not enough. So don't trust us. Trust a doctor. Well, we're just speaking generally, not... Not about you as a person. Exactly, not individually to the different individual's listeners. This is just general information that we read about in some of these studies. So in that study in 2002 that revealed the risks of the hormone replacement therapy, the average age of the women in the study was 63 years old. Whoa. So they tested people who were probably on average a decade after they entered menopause? That's odd. Exactly. The average age of a person when they go through menopause is 51. And the average age of the woman in the study was 63. So that's 12 years past menopause. But the age ranges of the people in the study were 50 to 79. Whoa. (laughs) Broad, but also odd. (laughs) Like, a very broad range in a very odd range. Well, I guess, I mean, even at 79, going on 80, you want to be feminine forever. Do you, though? (laughs) Should we, though? (laughs) I don't think so. I just want to be me forever, and I get to decide what that means. Some of those people were almost 30 years after menopause. 
So newer studies are showing that age matters when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. And some studies have revealed that in younger people, so in people who are under 60, or if they are within 10 years of the onset of menopause, that actually hormone replacement therapy can have benefits. And it can have a beneficial effect on the cardiovascular system. It can reduce coronary disease and all-around mortality. So the new stance of many doctors, it's, it really depends on the individual. It depends on the person's age. But a lot of doctors are giving hormone replacement therapy if the person is symptomatic. Oh, so not to just keep us young and beautiful and feminine forever. <laughs> it's <Yikes>. so disgusting. <laughs> what, about all, what about us who are not even feminine to start with? Yeah, come on I've now. never been called feminine in my life. Also, feminine <laughs> is a social construct, dude. <laughs> like, what qualifies as feminine? Are you the end-all, be-all, Dr. Wilson? I mean, maybe youthful forever, fine. but like. Feminine. Really? (laughs) In 2017, the North American Menopause Society, they put out a statement on hormone replacement therapy, and they said that they want to change the conversation about hormone replacement therapy to recommending, quote, the appropriate dose, duration, regimen, and route of administration to provide the maximum benefit with the minimum risk. End quote. And they affirm that age matters and that in many cases it is safe for many to take for longer than just a few years. So that was their statement that they made in 2017. So I want to read a quote here from the NAMS position statement, which is, quote, The risks of hormone therapy differ depending on the type, dose, duration of use, route of administration, timing of initiation, and whether a progestogen is used. Treatment should be individualized using the best available evidence to maximize benefits and minimize risks, with periodic reevaluation of the benefits and risks of continuing therapy. End quote. And additionally, the new position on hormone therapy is that if the benefits continue to outweigh the risks, a person doesn't need to stop taking hormone replacement therapy at some random age. As the NAMS position statement says, quote, It can be considered for continuation beyond age 65, after appropriate evaluation and benefits-risk counseling, for persistent vasomotor symptoms, quality of life, issues, or osteoporosis prevention. End quote. So in that 2002 study, what hormones were they looking at? What did they use? Well, they used synthetic hormones, so not bioidentical hormones, and they used either estrogen only on the people or they used estrogen with progestin. And it's important to know that the estrogen was conjugated equine estrogen, and then the progestin, the progestin that they looked at was medroxyprogesterone acetate. And so while the information that was gleaned in the 2002 study was really useful, because it let us know that these synthetic hormones that were used in the study on these older women was dangerous. It was the benefits did not outweigh the risks. But those findings of the study, it didn't give us information about the safety and the effectiveness of other hormone replacement 
formulations or regimens or delivery methods or, you know, bioidentical or different types of synthetics. Yeah, I think that's really important to point out that this study may sound like it was saying one thing, that hormone replacement therapy isn't safe. But what it's really saying is that these two specific hormones used are not safe for people specifically in this age bracket. So that's a really interesting distinction is when we became fearful of hormone replacement therapy, what we really should have been fearful of was usage of conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate in older people, not hormone replacement therapy in general. We will also say that some doctors recommend that people who have early menopause take hormone therapy, even if they aren't having severe symptoms from menopause. There is evidence to suggest that if you go into menopause before 45, and especially before age 40, and you don't use estrogen therapy, it's associated with a potentially higher risk of osteoporosis, heart disease, dementia, and premature death. And that's really scary to think about, and we just laid that out there, a scary little gift on your doorstep. But especially because many of us in this community have had our ovaries removed at young ages, in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, if you've been plunged into menopause at a young age, we know it's really difficult. And having that drastic, sudden drop in hormones can lead to a lot of extreme symptoms. Since estrogen does have a protective effect on many aspects of our health, losing years or even decades of estrogen could potentially have long-term effects. This is something to speak with your doctor about to see if hormone replacement therapy is right for your individual case or not. Something else to mention is that there's often a demonizing of estrogen within our community or a fear of estrogen. And so some people may have concerns about taking estrogen as part of hormone replacement therapy because they're worried that estrogen might cause them symptoms associated with endometriosis. But like Brittany said, That transition into natural menopause or that sudden plunge into medical menopause can make us suffer with a lot of miserable symptoms from being in a low estrogen state. And also estrogen plays an important role in various body functions and has a protective effect on many aspects of our long-term health. I want to bring up the 2022 European Guidelines. Now, while I do disagree with some aspects of the endometriosis guidelines in general, I do want to point out that they have a short section on hormone replacement therapy. And in that section, they state that clinicians should be aware that people with endometriosis who have undergone an early bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, so that's removal of both ovaries, have an increased risk of diminished bone density, dementia, and cardiovascular disease. It also states that as a good practice point, they recommend that clinicians continue to treat people after surgical menopause with combined estrogen progestin, at least up to the age of natural menopause. So there are a few pages in the endometriosis guidelines with more background information and a look at some studies. So we'll go ahead and we'll link that in the show notes today so that you can read more about that if you're in this situation of medical menopause at an early age and you can discuss it with your doctor if you're not already doing so. So now we want to talk about what bioidentical hormones are, because they have a different chemical structure than synthetic hormones. So the term bioidentical has been used in different ways. It's often 
where people say bioidentical to refer to hormones that are as close to what the ovaries make as possible, such as oral micronized progesterone. My favorite hormone! However, of course, bioidentical hormones is actually a term invented by marketers, so it has no scientific meaning. Some people exploit the term bioidentical to use for marketing for their custom hormones. Ah, just like the good old functional medicine doctor that I saw did. When in reality, there were much better FDA-approved, regulated hormones available to me. And you can find a list of FDA-approved hormone products under the NAMS Mennonote on bioidentical hormone therapy. And I've linked that in the hormone section on my website. All right, Brittany, I've decided. I've seen my doctor. I've seen my hormone levels. I've seen studies on safety. I've decided I want to use bioidentical hormones. But now how do I get the hormones into my body? Is there like a place where I go and there's just <laughs> the hormonal place? <laughs> do I just like go there and they're like, okay, now walk through here and we'll spray you with spritz you with progesterone. <laughs> That'd be so great. That'd be cool. But you like go to a park for a day like this is the estrogen water park. And every time you go down the slide, you get a little bit of estrogen. Wouldn't that make hormone replacement therapy make fun? It so much more fun. But no, it's not that fun. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways for our bodies to get the hormone replacement therapy that we're using. So many different routes of delivery for the hormones, like oral. <gasps> In my mouth. Be pretty common. Transdermal. What's that? Like a patch. Oh, on my skin. Yes. Percutaneous. Huh? It's like a cream or a gel oh, absorbed yeah, yeah. into your skin. Why don't you just say that? Because it's called percutaneous. Oh, fancy <laughs> science names. Also intramuscular. I know that. Shot. Yes, that's a shot. Or subcutaneous. Shot. Also oh, under your skin. Okay. Shot, yes. Sublingual. In my mouth. In yes. my tongue. Vaginal. Yep. You know that one. Uh, in my vagina. <laughs> Thank you. The ring, the suppository, mm -hmm. a gel, a tablet, a cream. My goodness. So many options. So many things I can put in my vagina. And also, surprisingly, nasal. Oh. Oh, I could get spritzed. Yes. Oh. <laughs> a nasal spritz. <laughs> The interesting thing about all of these different pathways is that, that each of these pathways can have a different effect on how the hormone is absorbed into our body, how it's metabolized, and the bioavailability into the body. My understanding is that bioidentical estrogen is usually given transdermally, meaning it's absorbed through your skin via a patch, cream, or gel, and it's safer than taking it orally. Estrogen used vaginally can help urinary genital symptoms in that area, and it doesn't appear to have the same risks as systemic estrogen. And I also wanted to mention the pellet. So many people use the pellet for estrogen or testosterone. They're about the size of a grain of rice, and they get implanted subcutaneously under your skin. Oh my god, I could get an estrogen-flavored. No, I guess it would be a flavor. Oh. <laughs> an estrogen-releasing grain of pretend rice. Yes. Under the skin and That my gives hip. off a steady hormone dose oh, for you. Wow. What if I just like use the nasal spray and I just like sprayed a grain of rice and then I just like self-inserted it into the skin of my I hip? don't think we need to be doing any kind of self-treatment here. <laughs> I think we're pretty clear that your doctor should do it, Amy. <laughs> what if I roll a grain of rice? Ooh, what if I no. roll a kernel of corn? No. no. Okay, what if I no. roll a strawberry? No. Yeah, that'd be pretty no. big to fit in the hip, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. 
No shards of your strawberry like the kernel of corn either. was like kind of pushing it. What if I use actual like popped piece of corn? <laughs> you just like soggy. roll it in the estrogen vaginal gel. <laughs> it was just okay. You've gone too far, too far. If I were listening to this episode, I would leave. <laughs> Don't leave yet. We still have more information. So. In addition to the body... In addition, oh my in addition. God, how many additions? Why is it so complicated? <laughs> Why are there so many methods of listed? Why are there so many different kinds of doctors? Why are there so many different kinds of hormones? I just, why? Because this is so Why can't complex. it just be so black and white it's and, and cut and dry? Nothing about the human body Why is. can't I just stick a grain of rice sprayed with nasal estrogen <laughs> into my... Well, I could just put it in my vagina. Then be- I wouldn't have to cut my hip open. <laughs> She's gone too far. I need no, to no, people, cut her off. Do not do that. We are totally sarcastic here. Do not ever self-treat. Don't put anything in your vagina that you're not supposed to put in there. Especially grains of rice. Yes. <laughs> no. So what I'm saying is that in addition popcorn, to popcorn possibly. All the, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Don't. No, no popcorn. Don't disturb that ecosystem. Leave it alone. <laughs> no, but in addition, all those delivery methods also have pros and cons. Of course they do. Yes. So it's just really important to know what those so pros tell and me cons a, tell are. Me a, tell me a con of the progesterone cream because the cream is so popular. Very popular. Well, and the, I was even thinking about the cream. But well, then I went for sublingual. Okay. So okay, okay. Okay. Actually, then I went. I took. Okay. I won't even go there. <laughs> I won't you know tell you what I thought about sticking story. in my vagina. So yes, fine. Go, go. So yes, the cream is very popular. And when using a cream, there's a couple cons that come with that. Well, first of all, pros are ease of access and ease of usability. Nothing has to go inside of you. That's very nice. But some of the cons can be things like the progesterone can actually get stored up in your fat tissues in the application place, which could mean that the release of the progesterone isn't as reliable. It could also be that you get a different dosage from day to day, depending on if you use the proper amount or a little bit more or a little bit less. Could also be that if you apply the progesterone cream and then you go and touch somebody else, they're also going to get progesterone on them. So that's also another con of the cream. So when looking at hormone replacement and delivery routes, you also need to be aware of what's best for you depending on your lifestyle, what you feel most comfortable with, because there's good and not as good things about each delivery option. Most of the menopause specialists that I follow say to use FDA-approved products because they're regulated. And to avoid custom compounded hormones or pellets, if FDA-approved options are available, because there are concerns about under- or overdosing with these options. A good example of when a custom compounded hormone is helpful is when a person has an allergy to an ingredient in an FDA-approved product. And another example is for testosterone. And unfortunately, there's no FDA-approved testosterone products for females, and so some prescribers will prescribe the male FDA-approved product and tell the patient to use a smaller dose, while others will prescribe a custom compounded testosterone cream. Wow, you're so smart about hormones. I have so much catching up to do. Thank you. Talk about me, how great I am. You're so wonderful. You're so great and intelligent and knowledgeable and kind and compassionate and beautiful. And I'm just in in awe of you every day. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you. Well, (laughs) I want to say I really wasn't born with it. Except your award. Where's your award speech? Your award is best human being in my life. I want to thank. Don't tell my husband. (laughs) I want to thank my one ovary that I have left (laughs) in my body who's just not doing the work 
that she's supposed to. (laughs) It could be because I'm now 35 and progesterone has put on her strawberry sunglasses and has started (laughs) marching down the hill. Or it could be because she lost her twin, her best friend, Lefty. So it could be any number of reasons, but I'm here today to thank Righty for not working properly. So I had to go on this long, arduous, dark, difficult. Where was I? Oh, the trek, the arduous journey and trek to try to figure out what the heck is wrong with my hormones, which took me down this path to learning about what doctor could help me, what tests there were, what hormones I needed to do, how I need to get those hormones in my body. And I'm still on this journey and I may be on this journey forever until I turn into a bloodless butterfly. <laughs> thank you. And I'd like to thank my mother and Brittany and my cat and blah, blah, blah. The but... afterthought. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. All the information that exists on the planet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. I, hope- I mean, that'd be great because I'd be like, oh, we're so knowledgeable. But that's like a no. drop of water in an ocean. That is the, yeah, that is scratching the surface. But that is one drop of progesterone in a body of mine that needs 100. <laughs> Accurate. Good analogy. But we hope that at least the information that we were able to talk about in this episode can help you in some way. We hope that like for us, it helped to arm you with questions to ask your doctors. Helps you get the wheels turning yes, in your brain. The gears turning helps to arm you with knowledge of how to research, what type of doctor to see, knowing about all the different ways that hormones can interact in our body and all the different ways they can get in there and all the different things that they can do for us, what hormone replacement therapy is and isn't. We hope that if you are also seeking hormone replacement therapy, that this can help you to get on a path that works for you and your body. So let us know about your own journey with hormone replacement therapy. Has it been complicated? What kind of doctor are you working with? Are you at the top of the mountain or are you with me down in the mud? (laughs) (laughs) What hormones are you taking or thinking about taking? How are you taking them? Is there a piece of rice? No, in, there is not. <laughs> there in, is not. In your vagina. No. In your side. No, maybe. In your butt crack. No. I mean, maybe. <laughs> it depends if you eat rice early that day and it's on its way out. But so definitely reach out to us and let us know where you are in your hormone journey. Maybe your hormones are your blood cycling perfectly without any blood on a light switch or toilet bowl or shower afterwards. Your <laughs> landlord legs. is perfectly satisfied and happy with you. So we are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't shove any rice anywhere in your vagina. (laughs) I'm just obsessed right now with rice in the vagina. (laughs) Don't bleed on your light switches. (laughs) And have a good day. (laughs) (laughs) And talk to you next time. (laughs) 